Baker chapter 3, verse 15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to our Christian faith, we always have to be ready to give a defense of what is inside of us, meaning why do we have hope? Why are we joyful? Why, why can we look at bad situations and still see good in them because God is in all things, right? So the book of Galatians, it shows us the importance of truth of the gospel. And the truth is that we are saved by faith alone apart from all of our works. So nothing can save us that we do. You know, we're saved on the merit of Christ's righteousness, not on the merit of our own. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different beliefs out there to where you you can earn your way into heaven, you can have good works and still go to heaven, but that is not the case because Jesus is the work. And we, and we put our faith and we put our trust and our belief in Him. You know, God gives us the, the gift of faith and, and draws us to Him, and that's what brings us and leads us to repentance, to salvation. So it is nothing that we have done or will do. So whenever Paul went, he faced backlash for for his gospel that he preached. In in Galatia, the church was being attacked from from within by false teachers. He, he wasn't being attacked by church members. He was being attacked by false teachers from the outside coming in who were looking to change the subject from Jesus' finished work and adding an addition to man's requirements, but to change the subject from Jesus to man is actually to leave Jesus altogether. So you can't have man working in there because then that just negates the work of Jesus on the cross. So we see here that, that Paul had this, this, this fight and this, this argument going on, not just in the book of Galatians, but you, you see it throughout Paul's letters and throughout his epistles in all of his writings a little bit. So when he faced this backlash, he knew that he had to come to defense for it because he knew the, 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 the revelation that Jesus gave him of the gospel that it, it was worth defending and even defending with his life if need be. But to change the subject from Jesus to man is to leave him altogether. So Paul writes the, the book of Galatians to preserve the truth to preserve the truth of the gospel and to defend the flock, his, his church, to defend them against these false teachers who attacked both the gospel that he preached and the man that Paul was. So in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he says, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Taking Titus along with me, I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had ran in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So we saw in, in earlier messages, like in chapter 1, Paul's defense of his ministry and his message. So Paul continues this defense in chapter 2 as he details his visit to Jerusalem and the accusation from these false teachers in Galatia. Okay, so what we see is that these accusations was that Paul's gospel was not a real gospel. 
So they were turning around and saying, well, he is actually the one who is preaching a false gospel, not us. We're the ones who are bringing you the truth. They believe the real gospel was Jesus plus works. And that's a gospel that is still being preached today. And Roman Catholicism, you, know, you see it in other different denominations and in super ultra legalistic churches, that it's Jesus plus works. But Paul's gospel began and ended with Jesus, just like our gospel should begin and end with Jesus. Works played no part in the justification process. Okay, so according to Paul, because it was only the work of Jesus that had the power to justify, we get in by believing in his work and not trusting in on our, on, our, on our own work. Because let's just be real and let's be honest for a minute. Could our works really do us any good? Like would, would anything that we ever do here on earth actually get us into heaven? Probably not because we'll mess up somewhere along the way, right? Because in order to have the faith plus works, you had to go by the, the Mosaic law of the Old Testament law system. So if you broke one of those, you ended up breaking every one of them. So our works would never be able to save us. Our works would never be able to justify us. And to these false teachers, Paul gospel, Paul's gospel just didn't hold up to them because they were so stooped in the law and they were so stooped in their tradition that, that they believed that God could never accept us. And here's the thing, he, he, he doesn't accept us as we are. He draws us to him to make us a new creation. They thought God could never accept us how we are as unchanged by our works. But Jesus' work was good, but he, to them, Jesus required little effort on our part to complete salvation because it's all a gift from God and they could not wrap their head around that. They couldn't get it through their head that, that God was drawing people near to him both Jew and Gentile, they, they just couldn't get it that God was doing all of it and that we had to do nothing. The only requirement of us is to repent and believe. Nothing else. But to Paul, this, was, this wasn't just a slight deviation from the gospel. This was adding to it. This was a, a complete rewriting of the gospel, and this was a desertion of God and putting the emphasis more on man. So there we see that, that Paul heard this gospel message from Jesus himself on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. He gets knocked off the horse. He gets blinded for three days. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. He had this revelation straight from Jesus himself. It was not any man who revealed it to him. It was God the Father in the person, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how he got his gospel. So what Paul preached wasn't some made-up, ear-tickling, live however you want to, that grace, now that grace is here, some kind of gospel. Like that was not what Paul was preaching. It was, it was the full-bodied, everlasting, glory-infusing gospel of God that convicted you and, and cut you and hurt you because you realized you can't do this, that you actually need somebody to do it for you, and that, that was Jesus, right? So he would never budge on this issue. Throughout the, the writings, you see Paul never budged when it came to defending the gospel. Because if he would have budged, it would have diminished Christ. That's what these false teachers were. They were Christ reducers. 
They were saying, yeah, Jesus was a good guy. He did some really great things. Yes, he did die. Yes, he did resurrect. But all that he did just simply wasn't enough. So if that's the case, if it's Jesus plus our works, why do we need a Savior when it's, when it's just our works that save us anyway? If it was our works that save us, we wouldn't need Jesus. So Paul went to Jerusalem, but he waited 14 years after his conversion to do that. And this was the second time where Paul mentions going to Jerusalem in this letter. The first time was in chapter 1, verse 18, where he talks about visiting Peter, Peter to get acquainted with him. He only spent 15 days there the first visit. Now he goes up to Jerusalem again, this time because God tells him to because of a revelation. Right? So when he got there, he didn't demand a public hearing before the apostles. He didn't like stand before everybody in a crowded room and say, listen to me, apostles. He met with them in private. He went privately and quietly to meet with them. He wasn't out to prove anything before anybody. The way Paul was thinking, I got this gospel from Jesus himself. I have, no, <clears throat> I have nothing to prove to anybody. <clears throat> He was out to partner with the apostles. While he wasn't out to, to seek their approval, he was out to partner with them for the sake of, of God's worldwide mission to bring the Gentiles into the church. Because Jesus' mission was for the lost house of the children of Israel, right? So when he met with, uh, in verse, verse 2, where it says, I met with those who seem influential, he's not saying that they weren't or didn't have influence because the apostles did. Peter, Paul, or Peter, James, uh, John, they all had influence. He was merely saying that their influence didn't matter to him. That it, had, that it bared no influence on him what he was going to do with his mission that, that he was given. He didn't need their approval. He didn't need their validation for his gospel message or for his ministry because Jesus himself, again, gave him that mission. He took two men with him to the meeting, though. And this is kind of funny. He took Barnabas, who was a Jew. They knew him, and they took Titus. He was a Gentile, who they did not know. Titus is probably the most important person in this meeting that he's having with the apostles, though. Because being a Gentile, he was not circumcised. So he was not under the law, wasn't under the old covenant. But he had heard the gospel, and he believed in Jesus Christ. So he was a Christian but he had never been a Jew. So why did Paul take Titus? Most likely because it, he was using Titus as an example of the gospel that Paul preached in the Gentiles, or to the Gentiles. Because in verse 2, Paul says, He set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. He did this to make sure he wasn't running in vain, that he wasn't preaching the wall pretty much. So meaning that to be sure he wasn't wasting his time trying to unite the church. This was the ultimate goal. Paul was trying to unite both Jews and Gentiles together. So to make sure he wasn't wasting his time to try to unite the church if the Jerusalem leaders weren't going to accept non-Jewish Christians. So they probably accepted Barnabas like really quick, right? That's our assumption. Like, okay, Barnabas is a Jew. They're going to accept him. Titus, he's an outsider. How is this going to work? And that's, that's probably Paul's thinking. Like, will they really accept Titus here? Will they really accept this non-Jewish Christian? Because Paul was going to continue his mission, but he sought 
the unity of Christ among the world. That was his goal for the whole the whole church to be united. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he, Paul makes that really clear. Let there be no divisions among you. And we see that today with all these denominations that are out in the world. All they are are little, little fractures of division. Will they ever go away? Probably not. But can we all unite under one thing? Yes, we can all unite under Jesus. Now there's like some core doctrinal and some core you know, theological things that we can't budge on, like the gospel and, and, and some other things. But when it comes to the secondary issues that really don't matter, we can just th set that to the side. But as long as we can agree and unite under the core things, I'm pretty sure that, that that's what God wants us to do, right? So Paul here, he brought the gospel that he pre was preaching to the Gentiles in a real and a real-life Gentile person to stand in front of them as proof of the power of Christ's salvation in the gospel. So he used Titus as exhibit A. He's like, this is my proof that the gospel is for everybody. So how, how would they treat him? Like, would they, would they demand that he be circumcised or would they accept him just as he was as a brother in Christ? That was the question. Today... In 2022, almost 2023, we're kind of far removed from this situation. So we kind of find it kind of hard or difficult to understand how big this event really was. How big of a moment that this really was, that this was a major point of history in the early church. Are they going to accept the Gentiles? Because if the Jerusalem apostles forced circumcision on Titus, proclaiming that it was necessary for, for salvation the entire foundation of justification by faith alone would crumble and the gospel would lose its power. But the gospel prevailed because Titus was not forced to be circumcised because they all agreed that Jesus Christ saved him by faith alone. It is the same faith alone that saves us today. It was not a mark on his body that had been justified, but it was the mark on Jesus' body that justified him. It's the mark on Jesus' body that justifies us. So it was the person and the work of the Savior who sets people right before God. It's not that we have to get cleaned up and get right before we come to God, because if that was the case, no one would do it. Because our flesh is at war with God. Our flesh wants nothing to do with God. That's why God himself has to draw us to himself. Because if it was up to us, we'd be like, I got it. I got this whole thing figured out. We're good. This was a major success in the early church that this, this began to unite both Jews and Gentiles. So the years Paul spent laboring in the mission field were accepted as valid. And, and together, they all rejoiced in what God had done. So, of course, not everybody was happy. The false teachers weren't happy. The, the Jewish people still under the law and under the Old Covenant, they weren't happy. But those in the church, the true brothers and sisters in Christ, they were rejoicing because the gospel had the power of salvation to the Jews and the Greek and the Gentile and everybody else. Just like Romans 1.16 tells us to, there's, there's power in the gospel. Whenever the gospel goes out and people are saved, there will always be somebody who's not happy about it. Always. In this instance, it was the false, the false teachers. 
So they wanted to steal their freedom in Christ and capture them again into slavery because accomplishing that would give them power, would give them the power that Jesus rightly owned, and that's what heresy always does. It tries to take the power from Jesus and give it to man. So how do you know if something's heretical? If it tries to reduce Jesus, if it tries to reduce the gospel, if it tries to reduce the power of God and give it to man, that's how you know it's heretical. But the gospel prevails. Here's the thing. Heresy will try to strip power from Jesus and put it into the hands of the adversary. Yet Paul prevailed because Jesus prevailed. And in, this, in, in his preservation, the gospel was preserved for all generations. It was because of Paul and what he did is because of why we now have the gospel today. Now there's, there's a warning for us here in this passage when it comes to us now. What we do with the gospel message matters more than our family, it matters more than our church, and it matters more than our generation. Because the true gospel will either, will either live or die, in a sense, with us. Because if we continue a preaching and teaching and spreading a true gospel, that's what the next generation is going to get. But if we compromise, if we take the path of heretical and we start preaching a false gospel, a watered-down gospel, or a, a powerless gospel, that's what we're passing on to the next generation. How we treat God according to the gospel has a long-lasting impact that lasts generations. In fact, it, it may stretch down many generations. That's something I wouldn't want to live with. Knowing that there was, that, that there was something that could have been done to preserve the gospel, and yet the church didn't do anything. They kept compromising just for the sake of filling a building. They kept compromising just for the sake of building up numbers, just so that, they could, that just so they could say so many people got saved this week, or so many people got baptized this week. We should not compromise the gospel for the sake of being the most popular church in the city. And if you're preaching the true gospel, you're probably not going to be very popular anyway. How we treat God echoes for generations. If we treat church and if we treat God as optional, our, our kids and our grandkids will treat Him like He doesn't even matter. We set the course. We set the tone for how important all of this is. That's why Paul instructs us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 to pay close attention to our doctrine. You got people today that are like, well, doctrine and theology isn't, isn't important. Doctrine and theology doesn't matter. Well, doctrine and theology is the understanding and the study of God and who He is. So if you don't think that's important, I'm sorry. Because understanding who God is, what He wants for our life, what His Word says, because what His Word says is what it means, right? If we don't find that important, then you might as well just stop doing what you're doing. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching Persist in this, for by doing so, you will say both yourself and your hearers. What these false teachers wanted was not to preserve the gospel. They wanted to do away with it and, and bring in their own. They wanted to change it completely. They wanted to undo what Jesus had done. 
Just like people still today are still trying to undo what Jesus has done with His finished work on the cross. They wanted to put a comma where, where, where God has put a period. They wanted Jesus' last words to be, it is finished, and when He just said, it is finished. The false teachers wanted to say, it is finished, and now you have to do this. There's always a danger when it comes to preserving the gospel and preserving pure doctrine and theology, even for us today. So how do we know that we're, that, that we're relating to the gospel of God's grace? One, you have to ask yourself, how am I living in light of the gospel? Has the gospel changed my life? Has it changed my attitude, my thinking, how I treat people? Has the gospel changed me? How you live helps you see what you really believe. If you're living like the devil, then guess what? You probably don't believe the gospel. If you're living like the world, you probably could care less about what God wants for you. How you live reflects what you believe. When you sin, what thoughts flood your mind about God? This took me a while to really start to get implanted in my head that when I sin, I don't just think of it as, ah, oh, well, there's grace. Ah, oh, well, there's forgiveness. But by now, I've gotten to, the, to that point where when I sin, I'm like, well, wretched man am I, right? <laughs> like, how could I do that knowing what God has done for me? Do we believe that we had to clean ourselves up before we come to Him for forgiveness? Or do we run to Him with conviction in our heart and we cling to Jesus' righteousness alone? When others sin, what, what, what thoughts flood your mind about God? When you see a brother or a sister sin, what do you think? Like, oh, I knew that would happen. It's only a matter of time. Do you believe that they can find freedom in Christ right then? That they can find forgiveness of their sin right then? Or, or are you secretly holding them to some type of standard that you're not even willing to hold yourself? In other words, is God's grace sufficient for you in both what you believe and how you live? And is it, is it sufficient for others too? These false teachers were holding others to a different standard. And it was a standard that they themselves set. Like, you have to live this way, even though God said you have to live this way. They were setting the bar higher and higher. So I wonder why, why they set that standard. I think it's probably because it was achievable. Because man and in their infinite wisdom think that they know better. They, they, they thought that it was, it was a good standard because they could do it. That they didn't need help in doing it. That, that if they did it on their own, they could kind of be boastful and brag about it. They held their pen in their hand and they marked their own boundaries rather than the boundaries that God had set for them. And they waited for other people to get their act together so that they could declare them righteous. But that is not the grace of God. The false teachers drew the line and they kept other people out rather than bringing them in. And God erased those lines with the blood of Jesus. And He drew a wider circle around the whole world and it encompassed all people, all backgrounds, all races, everyone whosoever will believe in Him, including 
even including these false teachers, there is still room for repentance for some people. God reaches into the hellhole of this world, grabs handfuls of, of, of hopeless sinners, and He puts them on top of the kingdom. Why does He do that? Like, have you ever really thought about that? Why, why me, God? Not why me, God, as in like, oh, why am I suffering? But why did you choose me? I like to think it's because grace that big points to something so wonderful that only God can do it. That grace that big and, and grace and love and mercy that God has, it, it can only be explained in one way, and that's God. So we have to ask ourselves, are we holding the pen and drawing lines? Or are we resting inside the bloodline that Jesus has drawn for the whole world? Galatians 2, verse 6, 6-10 through 10 says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to be uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Caiaphas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. The only thing they asked us to remember was the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Here's the thing about this whole passage. The false teachers were put down. They were, they were like in the, in the church of Galatia. They were finally put down and they were shut up and the gospel prevailed. But more than that, unity was found among the apostles of Jesus. Unity was found in the leadership of the church. This is unsurprising to us today because we have the whole complete New Testament. So when we read it, it's like, well, that's not really, not really a big surprise. But to them back then it really would have would have been a game changer because you had to put yourself in their shoes. And in Paul's shoes, his gospel was God-given. Paul had a gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles. Peter and the other apostles had, had their gospel, which really was, was the same gospel. But they had no doubts. Paul had no doubts, and he didn't know how it was going to turn out with the other apostles that he hadn't really met yet. Would they accept the gospel or would they be deceived as well? And, and Paul uses a rhetorical, a rhetorical device that sounds like he's downplaying the apostles' leadership, though. So when you read it, it kind of sounds like he's, he's disrespecting them, but he's really not. So when, when we read this, it, it says that they seem to be influential what the... And what they were makes no difference to me because God shows no partiality. But here's the reality. Paul isn't downplaying anybody's importance. He's just saying that God's grace levels all of us. No one is higher than the other one. That God's grace levels everybody and we're all on the same playing field. That we, we all had the same advantage. So it did not matter to Paul who Peter, James, John, 
once were. He didn't care about the past. He didn't care about anything. He said, now, all that matters now to him is that we all proclaim the gospel. He's not intimidated by their status because they stand together as one preaching the, the good news to save sinners. He's not intimidated because they walked, talked, ate, hung out with Jesus. The Jerusalem apostles added nothing to Paul's message. They did not force Titus to become circumcised and they did not alter his message or correct his gospel. They listened to it, they accepted it, and the same revelation they had from Jesus, Paul had to. This is a great example of Scripture will interpret Scripture. <laughs> that God will not contradict Himself, right? So they recognize Paul's ministry as effective and as effective and valid. Like, this is the real thing. As all the false teachers are going out there trying to spread a false gospel, this guy right here, Paul, even though he tried to kill us and destroy us a couple years ago, his gospel is the real thing. So it's the same message, but different people. And Jesus unifying the world around his good news, that's what was happening then, and that's what happens still today if the true gospel is being preached, if it's being proclaimed throughout the world. So they all agree, but how did they get there? We know from Galatians 1 that this is not man's gospel, it's God's. God gives his gospel to those that he wants. Paul, Peter, James, John, they all received the purpose of preaching and spreading it throughout the world. But we have to look at the language that Paul uses in verse 7 when he says, entrusted with the gospel just as Peter had. And in verse 8, he says, God worked through Peter just as he worked through him. And in verse 9, he says, grace that was given to him. So what does this tell us? It tells us at least three things. First, it tells us, that the gospel ministry is a stewardship for kingdom advancement. That we are to steward the gospel. That the gospel ministry is for stewardship for kingdom advancement and not, it's not an opportunity to get rich. We saw in Galatians 1.16 that God was pleased to reveal His Son to Paul. And Paul was referring to his conversion. That's what happens when we believe the gospel. The Son is revealed to us. And we finally see Him in His glory as He really is and as we really are. And sometimes that's painful to see us see ourselves as we really are. But Paul goes on to say in chapter 1, verse 16, the purpose for which God revealed his Son, his son to him is in order that he might preach the, the gospel to the Gentiles. In saving Paul, God entrusted a ministry to him for the purpose of kingdom advancement, for the purpose of, of saving souls, saving Gentiles, going out into the... Basically, God, God was fulfilling the Great Commission. He didn't give him a job as much as he gave him a, a ministry to steward. I think that's probably one of the biggest problems in the church world today is a lot of people look at their position or their role and their title in church as a job rather than a gift that is to be steward well that God has given us. So we have to think about the all-holy God and trust His, His worldwide saving message to a bunch of fallen creation. Does that sound like a good idea? Like when we think about it critically, like this is like the life-saving message of the gospel and He's entrusting it to, to sinful fallen man. Doesn't sound good, but that's how God works. 
He saves people through the finished work of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection power places Himself within them and in the person of the Holy Spirit and commissions them to spread the gospel to the end of the earth. He takes messed up people, washes them in the blood of Christ and sends them out for His glory and that's the God that we serve. The second thing that the gospel does, the gospel ministry is God's work done through us, not our work done for God. When we begin to treat the gospel like it is something that we have to work for and that, that we're doing it out of obligation, our joy gets sucked from us. That's why the scripture tells us don't do unto this under compulsion. Don't be a hireling either. Because a hireling will run and flee. God's plan was always to save the Jews and the Gentiles by His grace. When Jesus rose from the grave, that, that rescue plan ramped up for the Gentiles. He's like, all right, now it's time to go. And, and Paul was God's appointed evangelist to begin that work for the world. Peter was God's appointed evangelist to continue the work with the Jews. But Paul's point in, in Galatians, in order to, to try to shut down those who were trying to, to silence him, was to say that he and Peter were both merely pass-throughable vessels used by God. They're like, look, this isn't us. This is God working through us. It was not Paul's gospel any more than it was Peter's gospel. It was God's gospel. They were merely just the messengers in the same way that the Old Testament prophets were God's mouthpiece. So, of course, they kept their personalities. They didn't turn into robots. Paul wrote like Paul and spoke like Paul, and Peter wrote like Peter and spoke like Peter. They didn't try to copy each other or anybody else. They were who they were. God doesn't change us into robots, like I said. He redeems us in total, including our personalities. So we get to keep who we are. It's just made new. We have a new outlook and a new perspective. Then he uses who we are to spread the gospels in ways that he made us to do it. Because we all have different strengths and we all have different ways to spread the gospel. Just like every church is not going to reach everybody. Different churches reach different groups. The good news of the gospel is that God saves us apart from our work and Christ's work saves us. So as we work as ambassadors for Him, our work is, is done not as extra points for justification, but it's, it's, it's the proof of it. Our works prove our justification. Our works prove that we are saved because we're then thereby we are producing the fruit of the Spirit like Galatians 5 tells us to do. So ultimately... Through all of this, it is God who gets the glory as it should be, right? The third thing and the final thing is the grace, the gospel of grace is a gift from God, not an achievement of man. Verse 9. And when James and Caiaphas and John, who seemingly to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and, and they to the circumcised. Paul knows who he is. That's the question you got to ask yourself. Who are you? Not who the world thinks you are, but who are you in Christ now that you are a new creation? 
Paul knows who he is, that he is a man saved by God and he is set apart and set aside for the gospel ministry. He told us in Galatians 1 about his, his conversion. We can read about it in Acts chapter 9. This is not the only place that he tells about it either. Like he's pretty proud of it. He was not a man primed to accept justification by faith alone or by grace alone. He spent his life to, in obedience to the law. Paul said that he is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. That he was wise beyond his years when it came to the law. So looking at it from the outside in, Paul made no sense to pick to be the one to bring the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. He rose in the ranks of Judaism. He, he, he was notching righteous marks by his actions, but when Jesus appeared to him and gave him his gospel, Paul received it as a gift. And Jesus transformed him from a, pros uh, from a prosecutor, from a persecutor to a preacher. The gospel is a gift. That's why Paul's boasting. That's why his, his talking so much wasn't in his own achievements. But his only ambition was for God. His only goal was to praise and give glory and honor to God. So when the false teachers came and they tried to sow in disunity and discord and brought up fake charges, Paul used all that zeal that he once had to persecute the Christians to fight for them before these wicked men. Paul's only motivation was the glory of the gospel. And ultimately that is the question. What is your motivation? Charles Spurgeon put it this way, He who really has a high esteem of Jesus will think much of him. And as the thoughts are sure to run over at the mouth, he will talk much of him. Do we so? If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep the good news to yourself. You will be whispering it in your child's ear. You will be telling your husband. You will be earnest in parting it to your friend without the charms of eloquence. You will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Ultimately, every Christian here walking on earth is either a missionary or they're an imposter. They're either the real thing or they're fake. You either try to spread the, the kingdom of God to the whole world, like Matthew 28 tells us to do, you're either trying to do that or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and yet you are totally silent about him. So let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. Father, I pray that you will just help us to defend the true gospel. Help our lives live out our convictions when it comes to your word, Father. Father, I pray that we will be loud when it comes to spreading your word and your gospel, that we will not be ashamed because we know that the power of salvation relies solely in the gospel. Father, help us to see opportunities to witness and to evangelize 
Father, help us to make disciples of those who, who you have chosen and you have drawn, Lord. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.